Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and return not thither, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and prosper in the thing for which I sent it. This morning's text is like a booster rocket to the rest of what we've seen in Isaiah 55. It lifts off the payload and sustains it, and I hope you'll see that before we're done. What's helped me most in my own fight of faith this week is the connections that I've seen between verses 10 and 11 of Isaiah 55 and the other things we've seen in the last three weeks in verses 1 to 9. And my prayer is that the same thing will be true for you this morning, that your fight of faith will be as helped as mine has been in seeing these things. Now, there is no doubt what this text is about. It's about the Word of God. You see that at the beginning of verse 11 very clearly. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. That's what he's talking about in verse 10 and 11. God says, my word. So it's God's word that we're talking about. And in order to be faithful to this text then, we have to talk about the word of God. And what I want to do is focus your attention on three things about the word of God. And at every point, let's ask, why does this particular thing about the Word of God get revealed right here in Isaiah 55? Let's not just lift these two verses out and say this, this, and this, three points, and not why they happen to be said here in view of what's gone before. Here are the three things. I'm going to sum them up for you. Everyone begins with S, so you'll be able to carry them through the afternoon at least. Number one, the Word of God is a span from heaven to earth. Number two, the Word of God is a seed of life. Number three, the Word of God is sovereign and triumphant. Span, a seed, and sovereign. Those are the three things we're going to look at. Now, those of you who are believers in this group, because most of you are, I want you to pray, already knowing what the message is going to be. Pray these three things right through this service for the next 25 minutes. Pray that God would strike a span by His Word over every separation between himself and people in this room. Secondly, pray during these next 25 minutes that God, by his power, would sow a seed of life in every heart that might be dead in this room. Third, pray that any obstacle to these two things would be overcome by his sovereignty. And just to get you rolling in your prayer... Let's bow and pray. Almighty God, whose sovereign word accomplishes all that it pleases, 
We ask that what you would be pleased to do would be to span heaven and earth in this room. Would be to sow seeds of life in this room. Let none, I pray, who is dead in trespasses and sins, leave this room without the quickening influences of your word penetrating their heart. Let none, O God, who are distant from you, whether in unbelief or in backsliding, let none who is distant from you escape the spanning of your gracious word, cutting the course across the canyon of alienation right into their hearts by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Do it for your glory, Lord. And for the good of your people, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, point number one is that the Word of God is a span between earth and heaven. Now, before I show you that in verse 10, I want to put verse 10 in the context of 7, 8, and 9. So, would you back up with me to verse 7, last week's message? Verse 7 says, and I believe it's talking about every person in this room until the Spirit of God spans heaven and earth for us. Every person in this room is spoken of here, namely, our ways are wicked and our thoughts are unrighteous. That's our predicament. Our ways, our behaviors are not good and our thoughts thoughts are impure. And that's bad. That's our predicament. Now, what's the problem? Why is that a problem? Verse 8. That's a problem because God's ways aren't like that. Verse 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways. That's why you have to forsake your ways. That's why you have to forsake your thoughts. They aren't mine. Mine are holy and high. Yours are worldly and low. Yours are selfish and mine are gracious. We are in trouble as human beings because our thoughts are not God's thoughts. They are sinful. And our ways are not God's ways. They are sinful. That's the point of these texts. Now, somebody else might ask, is it really that bad? I mean, are we really that bad off? Isn't there some truth in Shirley MacLaine and Martin Scorsese's Jesus when they say in perfect concert the New Age language, Everything is God. I get that line from Time Magazine. I haven't seen the movie. I won't go to see it, I don't think. Everything is God. Now, if that's true, then we're not in such bad shape. Because if if everything is part of God, you and I are part of God in our sin, and that's no big problem. It doesn't matter very much that God be kept pure and that His Son be immaculate and pure. And we are much closer than you would think because we're all part of God. 
Now that may be Shirley MacLaine's vision of life and the New Age and Martin Scorsese. But it isn't the vision of God in verse 9. Let me put verse 9 now into connection to verses 7 and 8 for you. If our ways are unrighteous and our thoughts are impure, as verse 7 says they are, and if God's ways are not our ways, and God's thoughts are therefore not our thoughts, as verse 8 says they are not, then the conclusion we can draw is there's a mammoth separation between us and God. And that's what verse 9 says. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Yours are sinful, mine are holy. There's an infinite chasm between them. Before there were telescopes, let's go back a few hundred years, okay? Before there were telescopes, if you wanted to get across to somebody that you were talking about a distance that was as big as anybody could imagine, what would you point to? I think of three things that come from the Bible, which is the book I read that's pre-scientific. Number one, you could say, as far as from here to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. That's in the Bible. It doesn't say Pacific. From here to the bottom of the ocean. That's how far our sins have been removed from us. Why? Because nobody's ever been down there. And they didn't in those days have a clue how far away that was. It could have gone on forever. I mean, who knows how deep the ocean is 2,000 years ago. Second thing you might have appointed, you might have pointed to was, was this. You might have said, why the distance is as far as the east is from the west. That's how far our sins have been removed from us, says in another place. Because you could just go on forever in both directions as far as anybody knew in those days. Just forever and ever. Or you might have said, it's the distance from this earth that I'm standing on to the heavens where the sun and the stars and the moon circle in utter inaccessible distance. And that's the one that was chosen to be used here. As far as the heavens are above the earth, God is out of reach in His holiness. In our wickedness, in our ways and in our thoughts, there is a chasm between us and God that we will never bridge because we love our sins and nothing in us is going to overcome that love. And even if we could, by some initiative in our own, overcome our own sin, we could never pay for the sins we've committed in the past. I mean, this chasm is infinite and uncrossable from our side. And that's where we're left at the end of verse 9. The biblical doctrine in these verses is very simple and straightforward. God is high and holy. We are sinful. And there is a breach of infinite proportions between us. And if you want a tuning rod to test whether the tones of the New Age talk is in harmony with God, this is the tuning fork to begin with. Every time you hear vague, pantheistic New Age talk about life, 
ask this question. Is there in this talk the conviction that God is high and holy, that man is low and sinful, and that the two are separated by a deep chasm of alienation? And if the answer comes back, no, 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 we are all one and there is harmony and unity and interrelation, scrap it fast. It is not in harmony with biblical truth. Now, here we are at the end of verse 9 with a chasm between us and God. And verse 10 comes in with incredible glory. And I want to read verse 10 very slowly and let you fill in the link between verses 10, verse 10 and 9. For as the rain and the snow come down from where? Say it. Heaven and return not thither, but water the what? Say it. Earth. Now, let's just stop right there. That is no accident. That's no accident that he wrote it that way. Verse 9 leaves us with this chasm, this infinite chasm between a holy God and wicked, weighed people. And verse 10 strikes a span from heaven to earth. The distance is very great. But a door of hope is opened in verse 10. The rain and the snow come down. In other words, he's saying the heaven, this summer is a good analogy of, of distance, brazen, bright, unapproachable heat. But it isn't always that way. The heaven is not always that way. Sometimes the heaven covers graciously over the brilliant, unapproachable glory that can't be looked at. Sometimes it becomes soft and warm and full-bottomed and gets down low and touches the earth with rain. And that's what's happening here. And then in verse 11 it says, that's the way God is when He speaks God does not stand aloof in distance. He grows warm and tender. He puts a veil over the consuming glory of His bright sun. He draws near and touches the very earth with His rain and His snow. Can't help but share this with you. I was in the S class a few minutes ago, and I said that one of my favorite sounds at Bethlehem was the swish of of uh, pages when we turn to the text. You know, four or five hundred people doing this action here, and I said I love it because it shows the people are in the Word. And uh, one of the young women of our church came up and she said that uh, her little girl says it sounds like rain, and that's perfect. When the Word of God is opened, whether you're reading the Bible or hearing a message, rain is falling from heaven and touching the earth. 
the dry heart of earth. If you go over into the New Testament, you realize what this span is in its fullness, don't you? Hebrews 1, In many and various ways God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by a Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. A span was struck between heaven and earth. He dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten Son of God, reigning gently upon the earth. Jesus is the span made flesh, the all-sufficient span between God and us. The rain and the snow have come down. Every time you open the Bible or every time you sit under the preaching of God's Word or turn on the radio to the faithful ministry of God's Word, the span is as near as your heart. And it is not a thunderstorm. It is a gentle rain like the snow on your sleeve, like the rain on your head. When the Word of God speaks at the end of this span next to your heart, He says, Come to Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for My yoke is easy and My burden is light. When the rain comes down at the first coming of the Lord, it is soft and gentle. At the second coming of the Lord, there will be lightning and thunder. And all the nations will mourn who rejected Him. But at the first coming of the Lord, it is gentle, it is soft, it is a spring refreshing shower. That's the way God is when He speaks it. God sent not the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now look at the light that this sheds on verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Now, near, I thought he was in heaven. I, I, I thought the, the gap was infinite. I thought there was this chasm. What is this near? Now we know from verse 10 what this near is. The Lord has struck a span across the chasm and has drawn near to His people. He's drawn near to you this morning. He comes near in the Word of God. When you read the Bible or when you sit under the preaching of God's Word, He is near to you and He wants you to seek Him. Now when it says seek, it doesn't mean play hide and seek. I thought last week, I said, I wonder if I left them with the impression that God plays hide and seek so that as soon as you're about to find Him, He scoots around the other side. That's a lot of, a lot of people feel that way about God, I think. He will not let me find Him. I've tried to find Him. He's always running from me. This text says exactly the opposite of that. As the rain and the snow come down and touch the needy, thirsty, dry ground. His Word comes down so that when His Word draws near, as it is right now in every person who's listening, 
you can seek Him. And when it says seek, it doesn't mean search for a hidden God. It means open your eyes. What does the Lord say when He's ready to be found? When He strikes that span from heaven to earth? He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Here He is, alright? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will finish the next phrase for me, hear my voice. So it's the Word who's really here. If anyone will hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. That's how near the Lord is when He draws near like rain on your head and like snow on your sleeve. He is not trying to hide from you. He is as near as the rain that hits your face when you walk out into one of these showers. He's as near as the snow that you you do like this when you come in off. That's how near God gets to you when He strikes the span from heaven to earth. So when He says, call upon me while I am near, He's talking near, folks. Near, near, near. So really the problem is with me. That's a big problem for me because I have called upon the Lord in recent days for some things that I don't get through to. And I'm struggling to figure out what's wrong with me. And I do believe the problem is with me. Why can't I find what I'm after? It's not God's problem. The Lord says He's near as the Word of God. You open your Bible, there He is. Just open yourself to Him. Now the second point this morning, after saying that the Word of God is a span between heaven and earth that draws near, is to say that it is a seed of life. The Word of God is a seed of life. Let's read verse 10 again. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, return not thither, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. And let's just stop there. Five things rain accomplishes after it hits the ground. Look at them. Number one. It waters the earth. Number two, it makes it bring forth. Number three, it makes it sprout. Number four, it gives seed to the sower. And number five, it gives bread to the eater. Now, my question when I read a verse like that is this. Why does God use language like that? Why does he draw out the analogy, the comparison? I mean, it's a long sentence, a two-verse sentence. That's a long sentence. And the first half of the sentence is just as this, and then comes so the word. Why does the just as part get drawn out in five or six pieces? I mean, he could have been very efficient, kept the Bible a little shorter, made it more manageable by just saying, as the rain comes down from heaven and accomplishes what it's supposed to do, so my word comes down and accomplishes what it's supposed to do. Why all this touchable, smellable, tasteable language? That's a good question to ask, because the answer is he wants you to taste something, touch something, smell something, feel something. 
Language is in the Bible to make you feel something, right? Now, what are we supposed to feel about the Word of God when you read verse 10? I think that you are supposed to feel, when you approach the Word of God or when it approaches you, the same way your brown backyard felt when the rain started to fall and make it green. Or, I, th- I think you're supposed to feel the way a half-grown, shriveled Minnesota corn stalk feels when the moisture begins to make its way, coursing up through the stalk, pushing out big, bulbous, yellow kernels of corn. I think you're supposed to feel the way a farmer feels when at the end of harvest time, there's enough to eat, there's enough to sell, and there's enough to plant for next year, seed for the sower. I feel so happy. Thank the Lord. And I think finally you're supposed to feel like you feel when you wake up on a crisp fall morning and somebody's cooking toast. Bread for the eater. Do you come to the Word of God like that? Oh, I hope you get hungry for the Word of God. This verse is written to make people hungry for the Word of God, to make people feel so luscious and drenched and happy and hopeful that God has spoken to me. He's speaks to me. It's like rain and snow when I'm thirsty on a dry ground. It's like a farmer who's got all its need. It's like a good breakfast with a moist buttered toast. Why? Why do we have to feel so burdened about the Word of God? Sweeter than honey to my taste, David says. More precious than gold. Yea, much Fine gold. I was thinking about that last night as I meditated on Psalm 19. And I thought, gold and honey. And I thought, now what are gold and honey? Gold is for buying things. So that you can have all you need on the outside. And honey is for sweetness on the inside. To satisfy all those cravings for satisfaction that we have. That's the way the Word of God is. You you immerse yourself in the Word of God and let it saturate you. It'll satisfy the honey needs and the gold needs in your life. Jesus dealt a deafening blow to Satan with this conviction. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. And Satan flies out of your life. You remember the time... He began to teach hard things and people started to leave him saying, these are hard sayings. And he turned to Peter and the others and he said, will you leave too? And Peter responded, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the what? Finish it. Words of life. Life. We want life, Jesus. We don't know where else we can find life. There's only one place we know we can find life in the 20th century. Right here in this book. Jesus Christ, the living Word. And I think, don't you, striking another one of those links now to what we've seen before, that when God spoke, verse 
10. He wanted us to remember verse 2. You see the connections with hearing and eating and life? Let's read them again in verse 2 and 3. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Hearken diligently to me and eat. Now there's the definition of hearkening. It's eating. And the definition of eating is hearkening. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. You see it? Hearken. Incline your ear. Hear. Eat. Live. There's no doubt that there's a connection between verse 10. Bread for the eater. Seed for the sower. And verse 2. Listen to the word. Eat. Live. It's life. It's a seed of of life. And I just pray so earnestly for you and ask you to pray for me that we will be a church of the Word. You remember that survey we took about three or four years ago of how much time everybody spends in the Word? I think it averaged out to about five minutes in the Word a day and many of our people not being in the Word every day. Some reading the Bible once a week. And I just said to the staff this morning, unless I can, by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the agency of this message this morning, beget a longing and a hunger in you that raises the amount of time you meditate on the Word of God, this church will be a defeated church from now until doomsday. There is only one way to have victory, and that is to have people who are soaking in the Word of God every day. I mean, every day, the Bible says, day and night. Then you will be like a tree planted by streams of water that brings forth its fruit, whose leaves don't wither, and in everything you do, you will prosper. Don't blame God for any lack of prosperity in your life if you aren't spending an hour in His Word. Well, you say, whoa, an hour? Come on. There's no law here. Try five minutes if you don't have five. Try a half an hour. Try an hour. I can't get enough of God's Word in order to keep me safe from the slings and arrows of Satan. I don't know how people who don't read the Bible avoid temptation. I don't think you do. Please, resolve today to be in the Word. And I close now with a third point. The Word is sovereign. The Word of God is sovereign and triumphant. This is the booster underneath everything else. Let's read verse 11. So shall my Word be that goes forth from my mouth, It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish. Here it is. It will accomplish that which I purpose and prosper in the thing for which I sent it. This is the booster rocket that gets everything else in this chapter off the ground and holds it up. This is the guarantee that back in chapter 3, the covenant that God makes will be an everlasting covenant. Did I say chapter 3? Verse 3. Back in verse 3, that the covenant He makes will be an everlasting covenant. It's the guarantee that the life that He promises in verse 3 will be an everlasting life. This promise is the guarantee that the nations will come when the missionaries in verse 5 call the nations. It's the guarantee that the span that's built between heaven and earth won't collapse halfway up. It's the guarantee that the seed planted will bear fruit. It's the guarantee that the pardon offered in verse 7 will be abundant and overflowing. 
It's the guarantee that when you seek the Lord who is near, He will be found. This promise in verse 11 is the rock-solid foundation of all the promises of the Bible. God will do what He says He'll do. My heart just swells with this promise. I love this promise. I love it not just because I'm a preacher and I like to hear these kinds of reassurances that my labor is not in vain. But I love it because I believe that when history is over and the last trumpet sounds and Christ descends and the angel call gathers the elect and the dead in Christ are raised, we will spend an eternity with God unfolding for us how not one jot, not one tittle, not one letter, not one comma of all that He had ever purposed to do by His sovereign word failed to be achieved. In fact, I believe very seriously that in heaven or on this renewed earth, He will take aside every child of His and very personally walk you through your life and show you that every sentence you ever spoke in reliance upon the Word of God, whether in witness or in exhortation to a believer, achieved far more than you ever dreamed when you thought it was being spoken in vain. And the reason I believe this is because that's what verse 11 says. Do you believe verse 11? This is a call for reasoning and believing. For thinking and for faith. What do I mean when I say it's a call for reasoning? It's a call for reasoning because this book of Isaiah, do you remember? It's this book where the Lord said, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. One of the places where he reasons together about his sovereignty is in Isaiah 46 where he reasons like this. He says, I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Now, what's the reasoning there? The reasoning is just like this. God's purpose will achieve all or God's Word will achieve all His purpose because He is God. Period. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Therefore, my counsel will stand. No one can stay the hand of God. No one can compete with God. Therefore, His Word stands. I draw a conclusion from that now that all the discouragement of our lives is answered by that promise. Every kind of discouragement you face is clobbered with verse 11. I also believe that this verse is the answer to the so-called closed doors of the missionary enterprise. God will accomplish by His Word all that He intends to accomplish. And finally, I believe that this verse 
is the final and last answer to Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Jesus. That film will be gone and forgotten totally in one year. But according to Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. In the quietness of this concluding moment, Father, would you give hunger to your people for the honey and the toast, the buttered toast, the plump corn, the seed, the precious rain, the soft snow of your word. Would you take out of every person's heart the legalistic chains that somehow we are to trek across the desert every morning for 15 minutes and having done our duty, go on our way with a clear conscience and rather make your word a reservoir in the desert day of our lives. An oasis, a shower, a stream, a river where the heart buckles down in humility and finds every need met. Lord, there are some here who just don't believe your word and I pray that they would be drawn in and made partakers of the covenant promises. Others believe and treat your word with utter inconsistency, saying they believe it's the word of God and giving it two seconds of their priority. And others cherish your word and struggle against incredible barriers of health and schedule. Lord, break in and make us a people of the word that we might be powerful and overcome like the young men in 1 John 2.24. They have overcome the evil one because the word of God abides in them. And I ask it in the name of Jesus and for the glory of your honor. Amen. Now may the word of God strike a span over every separation between your soul and your heart and his heaven. And may he grant that his word be a seed of life in every soul in this room, all by his sovereign power. And all the people said, Amen.